This morning we're going to begin a five-week study on the book of 1 John. Earlier this year we spent months in the Gospel of John. And in many ways, 1 John is a companion to that book. Although they share a name, most scholars no longer believe that they were written by the same person. But I'm going to say John says as we go through because that's easier. It's more likely that these books were written by two people who shared Christian beliefs that were shaped by the Gospel of John. So much of the language and the ideas are the same. You're going to hear themes of light, themes of love, themes of truth, just like we heard in the Gospel of John. But some things are going to sound very different, like strong statements about sin and forgiveness that we're going to hear this morning. Now, we believe that these strong statements are in this book as a response to some other teachers who had been leading this community away from the original message of the gospel. This book was written to reaffirm the beliefs of a community during a time of spiritual upheaval and confusion, which sounds a lot like what we're experiencing in our world now. It doesn't read like a letter. This book reads like a sermon or a pamphlet. This book is a work of interpretation for those who never saw Jesus in the flesh. The author is taking the tradition that we get in the Gospel of John and reinterpreting it for a new situation, which is what we are always called to do with the Gospel. This community has new challenges and new questions. The faith is growing and spreading, and people are getting new ideas about what it might mean. So the question for that community and for ours is this. How do we hang on to the core of the message while still being flexible enough to allow a new word to be spoken for a new time? What do we hold on to And what do we let go of? The book of 1 John gives us some markers on the path for this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life was revealed. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In God, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we lie and do not know the truth. But if we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, the Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who 
who's faithful and righteous will release us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. So when I was a little girl, I had this big antique bed and a really overactive imagination. And at night, I used to imagine that in the dark at the end of my bed, under the covers, that there were snakes. And I would never put my feet down there. And then one night, in a flash of inspiration, I realized that since I was actually imagining the snakes, <laughs> that I was free to imagine something different. So I imagined flowers growing up underneath the snakes and the snakes being lifted up on the flowers up to the sun and then the snake shriveled and died. <laughs> and then I stretched my legs out and I went to sleep. And that feeling of snakes lifted up on flowers to the sun is how I feel when I hear the phrase, God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. And feeling is a really good way to address the beginning of this book of 1 John, because it's really heavy on inspiring imagery and really light on technical explanation. Like the Gospel of John, this book describes the experience of our faith, but it does not explain how things work. And those are really different, description and explanation. It says, what we have looked at, what we have seen with our eyes and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Now in Greek, this is not a well-structured sentence. It like runs on all over the place and the verb tenses are all over the place. And that's okay because the goal is not to get us to understand something in this moment, but to experience it. To feel again in our imaginations what it would have been like to feel with our hands the Son of God. The real human divine one. See, we may understand something but it's not really real to us until we experience it. And we can experience something and know it's real and not really understand it. Now the difference between understanding and experience is especially important for us to remember as we gather around this table this morning. Because our celebration at the table is full of things that we understand, like bread and cup but it's also full of mystery. It's a reminder that our faith is built on real experiences like eating and drinking. But this table is also a reminder that we will never fully understand God. And when we forget that, when we think we have God figured out, we get cocky and we immediately lose our integrity as Christians because we all know there is nothing uglier than a cocky follower of Jesus. 
Now, the author of this book, who we call John, is very concerned about Christian integrity. That's what the second half of this chapter is about. We read the first of several strong statements about truth and sin. So let's remember that this book was written to a community of people who were earnestly trying to live out the original message of Jesus in a new time and place. So when the text says we, it's talking about us. It's not talking about all of humanity. It's talking about people who profess faith. And it's not just about what we think. Our faith is about what we do. Verse 6 says, If we Christians claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. If we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Now that is some strong stuff, and I don't do a lot of preaching about sin here in this church, but I can't help what's in the Bible, so we've got to figure it out. Like I said, the issue here is integrity. Are we telling the truth? Are we living in reality? Or are we deceiving ourselves and making God's love out to be a liar? Now, I hope you all know me well enough by now to know that I do not believe that humans are awful or worthless or shameful. Nor do I think that that is what is being said in this scripture. On the contrary, as people of faith, we perhaps have more temptation than others to get uppity. Have you seen that? I thought maybe you had. We get self-righteous. And we begin to look down on other people, especially other people who think differently from us. We think we're better. And to put ourselves above someone else is a disruption of the communion that God intends for us. And anything that disrupts communion is wrong and harmful. And the Christian word for that is sin. But we're talking about something that is disrupting and harming the communion we were made for. This is our constant temptation. In fact, Our original goodness, the inherent dignity that we have as beings created in God's image, is what allows us to recognize sin, to recognize that something is off. Think about it. If we were bad by nature, if we really were worthless and trashy and awful and just terrible, then sin wouldn't be a big deal because we'd just be doing what we were designed to do. The point is that we weren't designed for selfishness and superiority and shame. We were designed for wholeness and harmony and righteousness. And when we get off track from those things, thank God we are able to recognize that and return to the goodness we were created for. And according to 1 John, the method of returning is repentance and confession. Which brings us to the table because we always 
here at Zion, begin our table with a moment of confession. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, if we confess the things that separate us, the one who is faithful and righteous will release us from our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is a moment of freedom and release when we honestly look at ourselves and go, ugh, I can see that I have deviated from the wholeness and harmony that I was designed for. That's the truth. That's reality. And I want to be a person who lives in reality and doesn't live in illusion. And if we can't or won't do that, then what John says is that we deceive ourselves. And the one who hears our confession is Jesus Christ. The very one who himself is beautifully righteous and completely faithful and worthy of our trust. The word forgive in Greek means to release. And so as we release the illusion that we're perfect, we are released from the shame that we feel for not being perfect. God does not expect flawlessness from us. God invites us to faithfulness. God's joyful invitation to us is to live in the truth, to walk in the light without shame, loving one another, and being fully loved in return. Because, beloved, as our ancestors in the faith have proclaimed for hundreds of years, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. So people from all genders, all ages, all races, every type of body, y'all come. From the east and the west, from the north and the south, and gather about Christ's table.